I'm Sean P. Malone in Los Angeles, California, and this is The Camera Report. Our guest today is Ann Coates, a film editor with over 60 years of experience. And though her prolific career covers numerous classics such as Beckett, Murder on the Orient Express, The Elephant Man, What About Bob, In the Line of Fire, and Aaron Brockovich, she's kind enough today to reminisce about her groundbreaking work on one of the greatest films of all time, Lawrence of Arabia. Ms. Coates, thank you so much for doing this and for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for asking. Oh, I must admit, I'm a little nervous to speak to you. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia is like my favorite movie ever, so... That's years ago. That's years ago. You've been very kind enough today to talk to us exclusively about Lawrence of Arabia. And before we kind of get into that conversation, I do want to acknowledge that you've had a, and continue to have, a, a great career, a phenomenal career, editing myriad classic titles, um... In fact, as I was looking at your filmography, I realized you edited five of my favorite films of all time. Which were they? Um, Lawrence, Beckett, The Elephant Man, Pirates of Penzance, and What About Bob? <laughs> oh, really? I don't <laughs> quite agree with what with Pirates of Penzance, but the other ones I agree with. I thought Pirates of Penzance was a bit of a disaster. We previewed it in Atlanta, and by the second half, the... Uh, Theatre was only half full. Oh, you're kidding me. Oh, it was so embarrassing. It was, we all went out night clubbing and got drunk. <laughs> to soothe your sorrows? Yes, that's right, because everybody was so upset. Tell us about Ann Coates, the young girl. When did her relationship with cinema begin, and how did she become a film editor? Well, I was a very horsey little girl, and uh, as I grew older, I started riding out racehorses and things like that. And I wanted to be a racehorse trainer, actually. And until I was about 16, and I went to a girls' boarding school that was very strict, and we really weren't allowed to, to go to the cinema, but we were allowed to go to classic films like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights remains my very favorite film of all time because it changed my whole life. When I went to see that, we were actually reading it at school, and it was I wasn't very academic, and it was very heavy going, and, you know, suddenly I went to the cinema, and the whole book took on life, and I thought, what a wonderful thing to do, to tell stories in pictures like that. I think I could do something like that, and I suddenly became interested in film. I knew very little about actually making a films at that time, but I started reading up about it. And then I started becoming really interested in going into it and, and really being a director. And, and uh, what led to editing was the fact that women at that time really couldn't do very much. They could do hairdressing and makeup and, and continuity, but they weren't jobs that interested me. But I didn't know what editors were exactly, but then I learned how they put the picture together and one thing or another. And at that time, David Lean and also the Ealing boys, as they were called, like Charlie Crichton and uh, Robert Hamer and that, they all came from editing. So I thought that might be interesting. By chance, my brother dated a, an editor, quite a well-known one, actually, and she talked to me about it. And that's how I became interested originally, and I decided that that was what I would do. But it was almost impossible to get into the industry because it was very uh, unionized in those days, and it didn't matter who you knew you really couldn't get a job except in maybe the laboratories or some small company. 
So I had about two or three years to wait after I left school before I could get in, even though my uncle was uh, J. Arthur Rank, who, you know, owned quite a lot of the studios then, but he couldn't get me in and didn't particularly want to, actually, but uh, it took me time. And I went, during that time, I went nursing and spent uh, a couple of years at a very famous plastic surgeon called uh, Dr. McIntyre, who did repaired all the pilots and was the forerunner of plastic surgery today. And so I was lucky to work there. It was very interesting. But at the back of my mind, I still wanted to go into movies. So as soon as I got a chance, I, uh, my uncle actually did help me to get into religious films, which was a little company that made films and sent them to the uh, churches and things like that. And I did all odd jobs there, made the tea and did sound and repaired the films. So that's when the first time I handled real film because we used to send them out to the church for screenings for Sunday, on some for Sunday screenings, and they would come back damaged, the film would, and I'd have to repair it. And so I learned quite a lot about how to handle 35mm film then. And then they came around one day, and they said, we don't want you being non-union, we want to unionize you. So the other people didn't particularly want to, but I said, you know, grab the sheet and filled it in, and once I was in the union, I heard of a job at Pinewood, and I went and had an interview, and uh, <laughs> I was told students, actually, you don't have to be absolutely truthful in interviews like that, because I blatantly lied about what I could do, because really I hadn't worked in a cutting room as such, and uh, they asked me if I could lay tracks and order opticals and all sorts of things like that, none of which I even knew what they were. But I said yes to everything, and uh, I found myself as a second assistant on a film called uh, The End of the River, produced by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, and uh, I was, uh, you know, in, as it were. When you first said you were interested in directing, once you became a successful editor, so to speak, did you ever um, have the desire to move into directing, or, or did you find the editing... Uh, kind of fulfilled the, the film bug that, that had bitten you? Well, it was more really because I got married and had a family and my husband was a director. And also we had children quite quickly and I realized that really when you're a director, everything depends on you. If you're not there, nothing happens. As an editor, I could, I think, mix my family and my editing without either of them suffering too much, obviously, a little bit, but not much. And I felt that if I was a director, I wouldn't be able to give enough time to my children. I had offers of directing, but I turned them down. As you say, I found editing so fulfilling. It's very creative, it's very interesting, it's kind of like storytelling, and uh, I really enjoyed it. So it wasn't any hardship for me not to go into directing. And maybe it's better to be top of what you are than just in the middle of something else, because who knows what my directing might have been like. So I've, I'm very happy to have stayed an editor. When I think about editing, from what little editing I've done, um, it seems to me very similar to writing in that you know, you're putting together small pieces and bigger pieces, and then sometimes you get stuck and sometimes you have to sleep on it. Um, do you see that parallel to writing at all? Yes, I do. I think it, 
I mean, I do think editing is quite like a writer in a way. You know, you have the writer at the beginning and then you have the director that makes the film and then you have somebody come in who's like a storyteller at the end. I think you need a, a very strong storytelling character to be able to be a really good editor. I think that's really important. And you are sort of like the finishing writer. You had already made, um, I guess, nine or ten films as an editor by the time you got to Lawrence of Arabia. So how would you say these films prepared you for Lawrence of Arabia? And I, I, I guess I asked that just because Lawrence of Arabia is kind of a, a beast of a film. Well, it was a huge film to be offered. And I'll tell you very quickly how I got it. Is My husband and I used to live opposite Harrods, the big store in London. We used to go on Saturday mornings to the juice bar there with the children and have some nice fresh juice. And a friend of mine, Jerry O'Hara, was in the bar one day when we went there. And I asked him what he was doing. And he said he was doing some tests with David Lean for Lawrence of Arabia. They were testing Albert Finney. And they were doing like little scenes, choreographed and everything. And uh, I said, would you have anybody editing? And he said, well, I don't think so. I don't know. He said, I didn't expect to hear any more. But uh, on Monday morning, the line producer called me up and said, would I like to come in and cut? David had said he'd be happy to have me. And, uh, and so I cut the tests of Albert Finney. And David was so pleased with my work on that that he offered me the film. So it was only by chance. It's always luck. Luck pays so much in your life. I found luck to be really important. You have to have some measure of uh, competence, I guess, or whatever. But I think that, you know, to be in the right place at the right moment could be very important in the film industry. And that happened to me. And so at that time, strangely enough, I had had a couple of meetings with Stanley Kubrick, who was going to do Lolita. And I got on very well with him, and he offered me Lolita at the same time that David offered me Lawrence. I mean, when you look back on it, it was an obvious choice, but at the time it wasn't really, because Kubrick was very much the up-and-coming, brilliant director, which he didn't, I mean, I suppose he did turn out to be, but not quite as much as one thought. And David Lean was known as a little old hat, really which is an English expression, but, you know, he'd been around a long time and the new young directors were coming up, and I thought maybe I would like to work with the new young directors. Um, my husband, on the other hand, was adamant that I worked with David Lean. He was determined. He didn't, said, how can you turn down David Lean? So it was very touch and go for a little time. They were offering very little money uh, on Lawrence. Sam Spiegel said to my agent, you know, once she's done, Lawrence, she can ask any money, but uh, we're giving her a big break, which wasn't quite true because I'd already done Like Horses, Mouth and Tunes of Glory, which were pretty successful films, English films, particularly Tunes of Glory. And so I wasn't a complete novice. And, I mean, I don't know how much they contributed to what I did on Lawrence. But it just, I mean, you know, they were just films that were well-written and, and well-directed by Ronnie Neem and uh, interesting films. So, I'd, I, you know, I'd done a couple of pretty ordinary B-picture kind of films, but those two were really standout films, I think. I'm very proud of both of them, and they were before I did Lawrence. 
then funnily enough, they offered me Lawrence and we tied it up. And I said yes and everything. And then they postponed it five months because uh, they brought in the new writer, Robert Bolt. Michael Wilson had written the original script, who, who they now give a credit to. And uh, Robert Bolt came in to rewrite Outer's part with Tony Quinn. And they liked his work so much, they decided to have him rewrite the whole script. So actually, after the time I said yes, the time I actually made Lawrence, I did another little film, actually. I thought perhaps I'd made a mistake. I should have gone with Kubrick. But looking back on it, I definitely did not make a mistake. Can you talk to us about the preliminary conversations with David Lean, if there were any, I guess, before you started cutting? And, you know, did you talk about the script? Um, did he suggest films for you to watch? It's the reverse way round. At that time, the Nouvelle Vague French cinema was thriving. And I actually suggested that David went to look at some of the Nouvelle Vague because, you know, he was an oldish guy. And uh, so I thought he should see some of the Nouvelle films. I think that the direct cuts that we did in Lawrence, some of those came out of him having seen those French films. He did talk to me a lot about it, but it's strange in a way. Sometimes he was very chatty, sometimes he was quiet, and we had a really, really good relationship. I was pretty scared of him to begin with. I mean, he was a top, top editor, and I was a pretty young editor, And uh, but he was so great, he always said, you know, what are you so scared about? You know, it's only film. You show me what you think. And, you know, we had a lot of fun times when I would do things and he would be not so happy with what I'd done. He'd say, what are you doing there? But as I got braver and got to know him better, I did more experimental things. And uh, sometimes he liked them, sometimes he didn't, but sometimes he built on them. Because he'd say, you know what you said the other day, which I thought was pretty stupid. I think if we did this and this, that would work out really well. So it was interesting cutting with him because we did have a lot of discussions about the film. And he always said, have the courage of your, you know, what you want to do. Don't be pussyfooted. And he was particularly strong with the length that we kept. I mean, I don't know without him. I would have left some of those shots as long as they were, but the, he said, wait till the music's on there and this and that and the sound effects and things. And uh, and he taught me to, you know, have the courage to do that. And it worked out really well. I said to David when we were doing the reconstruction, I said, I think that sequence where they ride into Alda's camp is really rather long. So he said, well, go go and have a go at it, Annie, and see what you can do. So I cut it down to what I thought would be a really good length. And we had a look at it, and we looked at each other because it just didn't work. You know, Lawrence had a certain pace of its own that somehow, you know, tightening it up and shortening it really didn't work. So we put it back the way it was. And... Uh, we didn't tamper with any more scenes after that. When you did the reconstruction, you're credited as an editorial consultant. And I, I wondered if if it was truly a restoration to that original cut or, or if it was more of a restoration to an original vision and that scenes were changed. No, as much as we could, we put it back as it was. The guy, Bob Harris, who found the material and that sort of thing, whose idea it was to reconstruct it originally, I mean, I don't know how he found some of the stuff. He had 
found all these rolls of 65 or 70 millimeter film with elastic bands around it and my writing in chalk on it and everything. It was just amazing. So we put it back as much as we could, but we cut it down twice. Once short a month or so after it was released, and then again, about six or seven years later for television. One time it took out 15 minutes and the other time about 20. And to do that, we had to use little snippets from other places to be able to go from one scene to another and cut out stuff. So that was quite difficult, actually, when it came to putting it back, because we cut out a few frames when we changed it round. So there are, if you look at it very carefully, two or three little jumps in Lawrence now where I'd lost a few frames and couldn't put them back. And it was complicated, as I say, because we'd done it twice. And so we'd done it once within the scene and then maybe once we'd just taken it as a lump and moved it. But we put it back almost exactly the same, except for the one scene where Allenby persuades him to go back and he has the blood on his back because it was the only scene that Bob Harris couldn't find the sound for. And by that time, Jack Hawkins, who plays the main part on that balcony scene, had lost his voice. He had cancer of the throat. And so we had no guide track. And the way that Jack Hawkins spoke was very special. And he put a lot of <laughs> grunts and things in pauses and stuff. Anyway, we found an actor that was, could do his voice. And so we decided to put it all back, which we did. But it just didn't work with the other voice. Nearly did, but not quite. So we had to leave that like the recut and not put it back. But that's the only thing. Otherwise, we put almost everything back exactly as near as we could to the way it had been. And we had the templates because, I say, they found the film that I'd cut out. So we just put it back in again and sometimes had to lose a frame or two. After we'd done the recut for the television, six, seven years later, whatever it was, they had got one of the reels the wrong way round. The reel where Ali comes out of the mirage and Tafas gets shot. They'd flopped the reel over and nobody had noticed. I noticed it because I said, why has Lawrence got this watch on his right arm? And we suddenly had a look and the whole reel had been flopped over and they'd been running it like that in the cinemas all over the world. But David was so shocked because he and I had both looked at it like that and not noticed it to begin with until I noticed the wristwatch. It's very strange, that. How much time did Mr. Lean spend with you in the editing bay, would you say, percentage-wise, of the time you were cutting? Well, when he was out in Jordan, I didn't see him at all, and he didn't see any dailies. He saw the first day's dailies, but they got the uh, generator and everything set up, and then they moved further into the desert, and it didn't work, so they couldn't run dailies anymore. So he wasn't seeing anything for several months. He relied on Sam Spiegel and me. Oh, Sam used to speak to him usually. I spoke to him occasionally. Sam would ring him after the dailies, which we got twice a week. And sometimes it would be massive stuff, and sometimes there would be a couple of hundred feet because the light hadn't been the way David wanted it or whatever, and they'd had sandstorms and things. But uh, David didn't really see anything. So the first days, dailies, he wrote me some notes. But from then on, I just had to cut 
blind, as it were, I mean, without any talking to him at all. Well, I say I talked to him a couple of times, but, you know, he was tired from He didn't want to know about cutting. He wanted to know about shooting and what the weather was going to do, where the sand was going to blow and things like that. By the time we stopped shooting, you know, we stopped shooting for, I think it was three months because Sam Spiegel said David couldn't shoot in the desert anymore because he hadn't been to one of the places he wanted to shoot and he never got to shoot there because Sam Spiegel wouldn't let him shoot anymore. Then Robert Bolt went to prison, the writer, for marching down Trafalgar Square. You won't know about that. But in England, there was a lot of political problems with the nuclear war. And uh, he was very anti that and lay down in the street and wouldn't apologize. So he went to prison and we had no script. So eventually, Sam Spiegel managed to get him out of prison and we went on again. But during that three months that he was in prison and rewriting the rest of the script, David worked with me in the cutting rooms which was, for me, heaven, because, you know, I had him there and he could tell me things and we worked together and I got to know him before. Mostly they were preparing for shooting, so he didn't have much time for me, really. So now I had time where I could talk with him and I got cut right up to date and he saw all the stuff that I'd cut and was pretty happy with it. Obviously, we did a lot of changes and things. And then they went off and shot another five months in uh, Spain. And during that time, I took the dailies down about every month, six weeks, something like that. I would take them down and we would run them in really strange places, sometimes in cinemas where we'd lock the two projectors together so we could run the sound and picture in a sink, and sometimes in churches and and uh, I can't remember odd places, but uh, so David could then talk to me about them at the time, make a few choices and that sort of thing. And then I came back to England and would cut the stuff and I wouldn't take it out to him. He didn't want to see anything cut. I would go out again with the dailies and talk to him about another batch, come back and cut it. So I was nearly cut up to date by the time they finished shooting. Thank God, because we only had like 14 weeks before in front of the Queen. We were working day and night, seven days a week, probably 13, 14 hours a day. Luckily, David didn't start too early in the morning because he was actually living where the cutting rooms were. They'd made uh, an apartment for him above. And so he only had to put his clothes on and come down. But uh, he didn't like to start too early. But we then would work all day until maybe two or three in the morning. It was pretty hectic because we were cutting in London and they were doing the sound in Shepperton Studios and the music down there. I never have got it done without my assistant, Willie. He was so great because we had to ship the film up and down. It wasn't like today with digital where you had everything at your fingertips. It was actually physical film that had to go from London to Shepperton. And then we all moved down to Shepparton where we were dubbing in one theatre and Maurice was doing the music in the theatre opposite. So we were doing the music, taking it up to the cutting room, laying it in and then coming straight down and dubbing it in. It was that tight. Speaking of music, did you have temp tracks to work with while you were cutting? No, we didn't. In those days, they didn't very much. 
Occasionally we put music on, but very occasionally of a scene. We had a very big silent scene, you know, with no dialogue or anything on it. We would sometimes put music on a scene like that. But we didn't like nowadays, you lay a lot of music on. You never show a director's cut without having put temp music on. Well, we never did that in those days. So that I don't suppose there was any music on Lawrence at all because there were no musical sequences. So Maurice Shah would have, uh, you know, gone absolutely from scratch. And they didn't always like what he was recording. And yet we needed it almost immediately. So the poor man was having to rewrite it overnight and then record it the next day. It was very frantic then. We were doing a stereo mix, which was one of the first ones ever done. I was actually sometimes helped out with the sound people. I was tracking the camels across the screen because, you know, it was a huge screen. So I'd be there moving the, the stereo sound across of the camel's feet and things. Can you talk a little bit about getting those dailies and looking at the work of Freddie Young? And can you talk about Freddie's contribution to the movie and, and his work on it? Freddie is a wonderful cameraman, and he and David had a few little tiffs because David wanted to wait till the shadows got to a certain length and things like that, and Freddie didn't think it was worth it and things. But basically, they worked very well together. But I wasn't there to see it because, as I say, I was in London. How did it hit you when you started seeing the footage? Because obviously you had to live with the footage for months and months. Oh, it was amazing stuff, absolutely amazing. I mean, I've never had or ever worked on a film where we had such amazing dailies. I could make another beautiful film of the outtakes on Lawrence. There's so much good stuff that we could never use. But, you know, you can only put so much in. We took one of the Mirage sequences out just before we opened, actually, just at the last minute, because David thought it was getting too long. And Freddie was great when I was doing grading with him, because David was back doing the dubbing, so he couldn't really get out to go to do the grading of the film down at Technicolor, so I went with Freddie. That's the nearest I had with Freddie, really. And he would say that David was exaggerating the colour the color of the sand. Because David would say, no, no, it's more purple. No, it's more pink. And Freddie would say, it's all yellow. <laughs> when you went with Freddie to do the colour grading, what was your role in that process? Watching for face colour rather than the sand colour. How long did you work on Lawrence? 23 months, I think. It's obviously a classic film that means a lot to a lot of different people. And what, in your opinion, makes the movie so meaningful and so timeless? It's, it's so relevant to today. I think it's amazing that a film that was made like 50 years ago is so relevant to what's happening in that part of the world just today. So I think it's partly its relevance. But there's something there that I don't know what it is that appeals to people. It has a lot of humour that one wasn't so aware of when we were cutting it. But I don't know. I mean, I've just been at a film festival where I was introducing Lawrence. They were running it yet again. <laughs> and, you know, everybody was coming up and saying, you know, Lawrence is our favourite film. Few people came up and said, in the Line of Fire, no, Out of Sight was their favourite film, but 90% came up and said that Lawrence is our favourite film of all time. And several people said, young people, 
it was what influenced us to come into film. Also, Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, people like that, say that film influenced their lives. But well, I can't put a finger on that. I don't know why that is. I mean, we always knew it was a, a very good film. You know, when we were shooting it, we were uh, sort of aware how good it was, but nothing like it turned out to be. Every day's dailies were so amazing, and the desert was so amazing, and the performances were so amazing. I mean, Peter too gave a superlative performance, really, because it's not really at all like Lawrence was, who was kind of short and plain. And, uh, you know, he's tall and handsome, but he's made it totally his own. Nobody thinks of Lawrence any other way than looking like Peter O'Toole. Speaking of that performance uh, by Peter O'Toole, could you talk a little bit about cutting that performance and maybe what you feel like you were able to bring to the performance as an editor? Well, yes, I'm very much into acting as a cutter. I look for the acting a lot. Most of the time, Peter O'Toole was giving a really good performance. Some days he was maybe a little overtired or whatever, maybe out partying or something, and his performance was a little flat. And so I would spend a lot of time trying to get the very best bits out of the material. But basically, he was giving a very interesting performance, steered very much by David. David worked very closely with him. I was very fond of Peter. I was very sad when he died the other day. Last time I saw him here was when he came to do his hands and feet in the cement outside the Chinese theatre. And I had a little party afterwards. I did three films with him, Beckett and Our Girl Friday and Lawrence. I mean, I was looking at some of Beckett the other day and those two guys were so good in Beckett. I mean, to come in every day and cut Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton was just heaven. What's the best advice you can offer young or aspiring editors or filmmakers? Have the courage of your conviction. If you believe in something, fight for it really strongly. I think it's very important to have faith in yourself. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Coates, for being with us today. And I can't thank you enough. We're so honored that we got a chance to speak with you. I think I waffled on a bit, but the great thing is you've got a nice, clean pair of scissors, as they say. <laughs> always cut it down. <laughs> How interesting is that? I'll be editing the editor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very important to remember that. Our thanks again to Ann Coates. Visit facebook.com slash camera report and like our page for updates or to give us feedback. I'm Sean P. Malone. Thanks for listening.